to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Good morning. Great to be with you. It is a good morning celebrating the love of our God on this solemn day. Let's pray as we consider God's word. Our Father, you are good, and this day is good, but it was dark. And we pray now as we consider both its darkness and the goodness that flows from it, that the warmth in our heart would grow, and you would strengthen and deepen our trust in your good work for us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I think Michael Collett, in his article recently on abc.net.au, summed up perfectly the problem of faith in Australia. You see, in Australia, I don't think the problem is rampant doubt, militant atheism, nor the suffering of the world, all of which are significant things. The problem for faith with Australians is the common cold of apathy. Michael Collette describes being raised in a Christian home and meeting someone in his teenage years who didn't believe in the faith, and to his shock, they didn't think about Christianity just because they were unmoved by it, unstirred. They were simply unsold, in his words. And for him, this began a journey not necessarily of doubt, but of a simple slide to an unstirred, unmoved state in which the case for Jesus was just simply not appealing anymore. Historians, in fact, tell us that in the 1850s and 1860s, it was the same thing. Australians never liked coming to church. Uh, One uh, historian even says, this was not the place where the sincerely religious came. You know, this is not America. This is not where we ventured to start a new world. The Australian response to faith is not outright rejection, protest. It's apathy. And it's worth understanding that as we walk to the cross with the Lord Jesus today in Luke 23. That the problem for us, whether we come to church a couple times a year or come every week, all of us have the same potential problem. Our apathetic souls. That are unstirred. Unmoved that see too little. I think the cross, as we look at it today, is the great antidote to the apathy of the Australian faith. In it is the greatest and most scandalous and most degrading moment in all of Christian faith, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And there is no room at the foot of the cross for apathy. 
So as we look through this narrative that Luke has spun for us, and I think it is his best piece of narrative in the whole of his biography of the Lord Jesus, he gives little hints and images and clues as to why it is that the cross should shock and move us at what God is doing um, in amongst it. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the three shocks of the cross for apathetic Aussies and how it is that our apathy can change. Three shocks and how our apathy changes. The first shock, I think, is the one that stings the most. Okay, I'm sorry, but here it is. Good Friday labels us as enemies. Good Friday labels us as enemies. We get a hint of this in verse... 12. The beginning of Luke's scene is of the Lord Jesus brought before uh, the Roman uh, who was over the the region, Pilate, and his uh, crimes, as they are called, accusations are brought up before him of subverting the nation, of claiming a kingship that Caesar has not authorized. And then there's this to and fro between him and a Jewish leader, Herod. And at the conclusion of this little movement back and forth in verse 12, we learn that that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Now, we don't really know about Herod and Pilate and what might have been happening there, but it's not hard to guess on one level. Uh, Herod's a Jew. He has some kind of ethnic authority that's been given him by Caesar and has grassroots. And Pilate, who's come down from above. Uh, Pilate was known by Philo, a, a Jewish historian and thinker, as being vindictive, furious, inflexible, bent on self-will, relentless, corrupt, insolent, and insulting and cruel. Just to label it a little bit for you. All of that insolence, insult, and cruelty was directed toward the Jewish people. And so there's no wonder that there was tension between these two. They were kind of striving over the same patch of land, over parts of the Jewish world. And there's, there's no wonder that they would have been at odds all of the time. And yet what happens here is the Lord Jesus, as the accusations are assessed, is... Pilate, for whatever reason, maybe just because he didn't really want to deal with Jesus, hands Jesus over to Herod for Herod to examine. He need not do that. But out of deference to Herod, allows him to have a bit of a play with Jesus and mock him and dress him in a robe in his own way. And what happens here remarkably is these, these two political powers that strive against each other are brought to peace. Enemies become friends. The innocent Lord Jesus and the accusations against him, his trial and condemnation are the way that enemies become friends again. When you look at the narrative, you start thinking, well, Surely this is about more than Herod and Pilate. Who are the enemies in the story? And it doesn't take long as you you get to see the Jewish people crying out to Pilate for what he should do with Jesus. They vehemently demand that he be crucified. The enemies in the passage are not simply Herod and Pilate. The enemies are those who oppose the Lord Jesus and his kingship who oppose his rightful claims and dominion. 
is not two political people striving over the same patch. It is every human who strives against the authority of Christ over their life. And here we see it in all its blood-curdling glory. I think as Australians, we're good at thinking on the horizontal. We're good at thinking about mateship and about fairness. But we're not as good at the vertical. We're not as good at thinking about the rightful authority that may be coming over our lives. And you may be thinking, well, I don't really feel like I strive against my maker. And maybe that's because the reality that you have won. You have wrestled the dominion for your life from him. And what Good Friday tells us is that labels us as his enemies. And yet the innocent blood of Jesus somehow makes us friends. The second shock, I think, of Good Friday for us Aussies is that on Good Friday, you don't get what you deserve. One of the hallmarks of Australian culture is fair treatment, that people get the the good thing that is coming to them or the bad thing that they deserve. We should all get what we deserve. And yet, weaved through this narrative is an account of a man who does not get what he deserves. As Jesus is placed on trial and Pilate is working out what to do with him, the Jewish crowd cries out to him about another man, in verse 18, about Barabbas. We don't hear much about Barabbas until this point, uh, but Barabbas is basically guilty of the crime that Jesus is accused of. He has led an insurrection. He has broken political peace and in the process murdered someone. So side by side, you have the Lord Jesus, who's accused of subverting the empire, and Barabbas, who actually has, and murderously slow. And side by side, they stand, and the the crowd cries out, not for the blood of Barabbas, but the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the conclusion of this scene, as the crowd wins their way, Luke cannot even say Barabbas' name again. He is so confounded with what happened here. In verse 25, he says, He released the man, not Barabbas, the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder and surrendered Jesus to their will. Here you have the guilty man walk free, and the innocent man condemned to death. Here you have the inversion of getting what you deserve. Here you have the innocent punished, so the guilty walk free. Just to make sense of that for you, uh, and what's happening here in this scene, and what Luke is trying to tell us, uh, one of my uh, bosses Uh, for a couple of years, actually, slept with an unregistered, illegal, semi-automatic rifle under his bed. Uh, What happened is he'd gone to do some work in the country voluntarily, and they wanted to give him a present, and they didn't think of giving him steak or a book voucher. They gave him a rifle. Uh, And this this gun was worth about $1,000. They gave him 100 rounds of ammunition, just to get him going, I guess. 
And for two years, it was under his bed, and his wife was pleading with him, you've got to get rid of this gun. Uh, and he, To which he replied, well, what do you do with a rifle? You know, like, do you put it in the recycling? Do you cancel collection? And so he just waited and slept with his gun under his bed for years. Uh, this was around the time in 1996, uh, after the Port Arthur Massacre, when the government declared a firearms amnesty. In fact, there's going to be another one in July this year, 21 years later. And for six months, you could bring in your illegal weaponry, no questions asked. And so my old boss did nothing. (laughs) He waited a month, two months, three months, four months, five months. Eventually his wife convinced him, and he thought, yes, we should act. And so he sent her in with the gun. (laughs) To Surrey Hills Police Station, a young mum with 100 rounds of ammunition and a rifle over her shoulder. She put the gun on the counter and the ammunition next to it and walked out. No questions asked. That's what amnesty brings. A chance for the guilty to lay aside their guilt and have a fresh beginning. Uh, And it's not for free either. It costs $320 million for the Australian government to deal with illegal weapons in Australia. And in this narrative, what we see is the same thing. Barabbas, a guilty man, an enemy of God as we all are, receives divine amnesty, leaves his gun on the counter and walks out at the cost of the innocent Lord Jesus, who will now walk to his death. You see, Good Friday is not about people getting what they deserve. In fact, it is the opposite, where enemies are released by divine amnesty. And I think this leads us to the third shock, which is the one I think that grinds our gears a little bit the most as Australians. And that is when it comes to God and religion, it is not about your goodness. It is not about your capacity. It is not about what you are able to accomplish in and of yourself. It is purely the action of the Lord Jesus who offers his life for you on the cross that wins the day. And we see this most clearly at the end of this crucifixion scene. Jesus is led out. He's had two criminals placed either side. He's nailed on the cross in humiliation. The people stand watch and they sneer in verse 35. The soldiers sneer. The leaders sneer. Even uh, one of the criminals in verse 39 sneers at the apparent reality that this man was a king deserving highest honor. And yet he is on the cross receiving no honor. Receiving the opposite of honor. Shame and disgrace. And how pathetic that is in the end. 
But there is one person in the scene who sees different. It is the other criminal on the cross. In verse 40, the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you're under the same sentence, we're punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, what the the thief asked for makes sense. Remember me. Uh, His life is at its end. The condemnation has been handed down. The execution has been accomplished. And he will soon be wiped from the earth in all of his shame. There is no recuperation There is no way out of the situation. There is no way he can reform his life, repay his wrong. There is nothing for him but the judgment of the God who he has dishonored also. And yet him, in all of his guilt and all of his shame, justly condemned, asks Jesus, to do something about it. To somehow bring him into his kingdom. And Jesus replies remarkably that yes, today, despite who he is, despite he can do nothing, despite all of his goodness or lack thereof, he will be with him in paradise. Jesus proclaims not just Uh, uh, a shift in his temporal situation, which is impossible to change, but in his eternal destination, in where he will be in the life hereafter. This man who should face the judgment of God as he has faced the judgment of man, Jesus says, today will be in paradise. Such is the power of the amnesty that Jesus wins for us on the cross, that shifts our eternal destination. It takes from us the judgment not of man, but of God. How is that possible? Well, darkness covers the land in verse 44, a mark of divine judgment falling. You see, the only reason why Jesus can call that this man will go to heaven is because he stands in hell. The hell of the man next to him and the man next to him and the crowd before him. As he stands in hell, he lifts others to heaven. Not because of their goodness, but despite it. You see, in the end, when it comes to God, we want to earn our way. We want to be deserving. We want to be accepted for our merit. We want to win our own way, in our own power. But what is shown us here so clearly that there is no way out of the judgment of God as His enemies, 
than the crucified Lord Jesus himself, who shifts our eternal destination through the amnesty that he offers. There is no goodness in us that can win what he freely offers us. It is not about our goodness, our capacity, our strength or our power. They're the three shocks that Good Friday gives us. We are enemies and we do not get what we deserve and it is not about our goodness. The cross wins us away. The kingship of Jesus in his death for us wins away. But the question we want to ask here, the Australian problem we need to fix is, how does this lead us beyond apathy? How is it that this can move us, shift us, change us, take hold of us? And to answer that question, we need to look at the final part of this scene and at a man named Joseph. Now, Joseph is a good man. He belongs to the Jewish council. He's respected, powerful. And in one moment, he throws everything his life has earned away. He goes to Pilate and asks for Jesus' body, putting himself in political danger. Then he goes publicly and takes Jesus' hands from their nails, takes him down and wraps him in a linen cloth. And you have to understand how insane this picture is, because in the ancient world there is nothing more shameful than the cross. And so Joseph in this action is, is literally attaching the shame of Jesus to himself. All the dishonor, all that Jesus is seen as, Joseph is now seen as. And so all of his social, religious, and political reputation and capital is thrown out the window in a second. It is madness what he does in this moment. And yet what we see here is someone who has found something so deep and remarkable and powerful in the cross of the Lord Jesus that once you have it, All of the reputation, all of the power, all of the security and significance you have in the world is worth losing to gain it. That's how far beyond apathy he is. This reminds me, as we think about it, uh, of the end of one of Dickens' tales, A Tale of Two Cities. Uh, In the story, two men, Carton and Darnay, fall in love with the same girl. But she actually loves Dane, who is put in prison for a crime he has committed. And Carton, in a moment of love, smuggles himself into prison, dresses himself in Dane's clothes, drugs him, and has him sent out, and takes his own condemnation upon him. A beautiful echo of the story we're reading today. At the end of the story, as Carton is heading to the guillotine for a crime he has not committed, he meets along the way a seamstress who has the same fate. She's about to lose her head as he is. But she knows of what Carton has done. 
of his trade with Darnay. And this changes everything for her. She says, If it weren't for you, dear stranger, I would not be so calm. For I am naturally a poor little thing, faint of heart. He replies, Keep your eyes on me, dear child. Don't think about anything else. To which she says, I am not afraid of anything while I hold your hand. Under the inspiration of his sacrifice, she finds courage to die. How much more so with the amnesty won for us on the cross, with the Lord Jesus in our hand, how much more should we not be afraid to lose all things for him? To lose whatever significance or reputation or wealth or security or comfort for his sake who has won us eternal security. With our eyes on him, our apathy melts away because of what he has won for us. The cross is the one antidote to the apathy of the human heart, of the Aussie heart. So as we conclude, let me say some things to you. The first of all is to say, have you taken hold of the amnesty? Five months in with one month to go. The amnesty that the thief took hold of. The movement of the judgment of God for you as an enemy is yours today if you want it. Freely won by the cross. But if you're someone who believes today, but in your heart you feel that apathy settling. Fix your eyes on him. Let your heart drink of what he has won for you. Deeply, truly. That you were once a guilty enemy, now no longer, and your eternal destination is settled. You can lose all things now. You can suffer all shame. You can suffer all loss for his sake. He says to you today, keep your eyes on me, dear child. And don't think about anything else. Let's pray. Our Father, we come today to the Lord Jesus at his cross. And we feel the weight of that word that by nature, we strive against him as an enemy. And yet, there he is, offering amnesty by his own blood. Father, how desperately we need that. Oh, we are sorry for our hearts of enmity. And ask instead for the forgiveness that he offers. And for the eternal destination in his kingdom.
that it brings. Father, for our apathetic hearts that love too little and too cold, who cling too much to the stuff of this life, wrench us free, we pray. That like Joseph, we might see in the Lord Jesus something worth losing everything to take hold of. Burn it on our hearts, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.